Hello and welcome to Farmerama. We're very grateful to those of you that support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. This month we hear about more resilient grape varieties and growing grapes in the UK. We're offered a mind-bending new way of understanding what soil is. And you can sit back and relax as we take you on a farm tour on the other side of the world. Firstly, here's Victoria Vine Lizard, who's recently established a new vineyard, the Shiny Vine, on her family's farm in Warwickshire. Victoria's looking to farm her vines as ecologically as possible. And as part of that, she's planted disease-resistant grape varieties, which are more suited to the climate in the UK, known as peewee varieties. So we only just planted in May this year, so we're at very, very early stages. In terms of the estate, um, it's always been in the family. So this is my home estate that I've lived on my entire life, my dad before me. And we've always had land um, that we've we've farmed. Mainly it used to be maize um, and rapeseed. Um, there was a stint that we had peas as well. So I've simply just taken a proportion of the land and instead I've decided to diversify the land in the estate into um, vine growth, grape growing uh, and wine production because that's a personal interest of mine. I suppose it's a natural progression from me having an interest in where my food comes from and having a a personal interest in in growing vegetables and trying to be as low intervention as possible, particularly in this day and age where there's a level of loss of control in that respect. For some people, it can simply be convenience. For others, it can be expensive to eat well. It, it made sense to me that if I have a, a passion in wine and winemaking, that I should also have a hand in how those grapes have been grown, how the vines have been nurtured, to also see if I can be res- as responsible as possible for the land itself, to not abuse it, to not overwork it, so to speak. That's a common father's, farmer's term, overworking it, but, you know, to, to, to look after the soils because ultimately it's going to be there after me. I haven't used up all of our land. It's it's a relatively speaking for for farming. It's a small estate. It's, it's 150 acres, and there's two lakes, um, extensive woodland, beautiful mature trees. The biodiversity is fantastic. We've got all kinds of birds here and species that we're proud of. So, um, grape growing also is my way of having a hand in how the land is looked after how it's going to progress. I suppose I'd like to create an environment where also people can come and find a bit of peace in nature and to learn about how grapes are grown and where our vegetables come from and take a moment to look around them, to walk around the lake and to to take walks through the woodlands and to listen to the birds, as cliche as that sounds. But professionally speaking, I I came from a very corporate, commercialised environment and I spent a huge chunk of my time where uh, I I recognise it's very difficult to know when to stop and know when to be able to switch off and nature does that for me so I want to create a space where I can share that with other people as well. 
from the outset, I've tried to make it as, as easier as possible, if there's such thing, um, by picking grape varieties that I, I've heard anyway, and it appears that science is telling us are lower intervention. So I'm talking about the peewee grape varieties that have been effectively bred and selected to have a high resistance to fungal diseases. So the idea is that they, you, you won't need to do as many passes in the vineyard with your tractor, you're not compacting the soils as much, you're obviously not having to use as many fungicides. I, I don't think they are perfect in the sense of, I don't believe there are varieties that you never need to spray, but it certainly makes it a lot easier. You know, I, I heard somebody else say, it's all very well saying you want to be sustainable, but you're not sustainable if you're economically not viable as well, if you're not having a sustainable business. So it's it's finding that balance, that absolute respect for the land uh, and for what you're doing and making as wise a decisions as possible. It's all meaningless if you end up with a business that cripples you because you never actually end up with any fruit that or, or being able to make any wines that anybody wants to drink, which is another concern that people have had with PV, peewee varieties thus far as, you know, it, decades ago, they weren't necessarily known as creating great wines. Whereas now with a bit of trial and error and extensive um, use uh, in, in countries like Germany, we're finding that there's some varieties that are making some delicious wines and I think the market's picking up on that it's about marketing it right as well which I'm hoping um as as time goes on will become easier the challenges has always faced people of color that's not something that I haven't you know experienced in very I'm aware of I, I haven't I couldn't say that it's limited to me I've been aware of the fact that I've always felt I've had to work twice as hard as others. But <laughs> if you've been doing that from the day you've taken a breath, I suppose you don't know any different. What it has made me is very aware of the importance of inclusivity and diversity in the business that I'm about to run. So I want to make sure that any wine I produce, any labeling, any marketing, any website that I do, any social media, every single time I open my mouth, that to the best of my abilities, I don't feel that anybody from any background, religion, race, creed, whatever, doesn't, I don't want them to feel they can't be a part of what I'm doing. That's important to me. So it, it has molded me in that respect. I would say I have a good collection of stories <laughs> and I'm aware of the importance of making sure that nobody, whatever their personal story is, ever feels that they can't be part of mine. You know, so long as it's all good feelings, obviously, <laughs> you know, but that's important to me. But everything that I do, it's important to me that it's a space that people can connect, people can you know, find a bit of peace, people can feel seen, people can, you know, share their stories and not feel that they're excluded from mine or my business because their story differs from mine. You know, that's that's the the core of everything that I do. That's the core of what the the shiny vine itself is and the imagery of it. It's a vine that's struggled, it's slightly gnarled, it's got all these knots and ridges in it, but it's shining because of its own experience, its own ability to overcome and to produce fruit. Fruit being 
the good things that we can share with other people. So that's why I'm called, that's why the business is called The Shiny Vine and it's the, the root of everything that I do. I'm hoping that our industry becomes ever increasingly open-minded. And that, that means the kinds of people that we invite into the industry. That means um, creating spaces where younger people can come into the agricultural industry. And it's not about just landowners and people who perhaps come from a fortunate position. I think we need to, I suppose I'm, I'm boiling back to what I said previously, but being as inclusive, inclusive as possible. And it also means giving different grape varieties an opportunity. And so long as the product is good, which obviously is important, so long as the wine is something that can truly be marketable, um, I hope this industry opens its mind a little bit more to differences. Research scientist Andy Neal shares the results of some of the work he's involved in at Rothamsted Research where they've established a very different way of thinking about soil. Andy says that soil is a composite, extended phenotype of the microbes that make up that soil. This is definitely one to re-listen to a few times to really get your head around it. The extended composite phenotype is based upon the concept originally of Richard Dawkins of the extended phenotype, and, and he demonstrated that um, with certain organisms, birds are a very good example, that the genes, or rather the, the effect of the genes can be noticed beyond the, the boundaries of, of the body. So a bird's nest is a perfect example of that um, because they're clearly an expression of the organism's genes because you can tell one species from another just by looking at the nest, even if the bird isn't there. You can definitely tell a hummingbird's nest from an osprey's nest or a bowerbird's nest for a, from an ostrich's nest but critically evolution works upon those nests so if those nests do not protect the eggs well the genes are not passed on to the next generation so there's this close coupling between the expression of those genes in building the nest but then the uh, selection of birds that are good at building nests back onto the evolution of those genes. So that, that's the, the sort of concept of an extended phenotype. What we've done is taken that and used the extended composite phenotype to describe that process. So to understand soil as the expression of the genes of all the organisms in it. And that's where we add the extended term in the sense that um, the microbiology and the genes that are being expressed there are what are creating this living structure that is soil. Now, now, critically, what drives this extended composite phenotype is the input of carbon as energy and nutrients for the microbes. But then once it's processed, so you, you put carbon into soil as, as leafy material, as sticks, as effectively large, complex organic material. It's broken down by the microbial community in the soil. And then when those cells die and burst open and release all their, all their innards, when they secrete uh, compounds out through the cell wall, that carbon is then of the right molecular size to stick to clay particles in soil, and it forms a sort of cement that then starts to glue particles together in ever greater sizes. And that's what creates the structure that we call good structure in soil. The, the critical bit about the extended composite phenotype um, concept is that 
that structure that is created by the activity of microbes breaking down carbon creating structure is that, that structure then feeds back upon how the microbes live by changing the way in which nutrients, water and oxygen flow through the system. So there's this complex feedback between the way microbes create structure and the way that that new structure then feeds back upon the genes in the microbes. We haven't had an opportunity to really look at very fine time scales. We know soil structure itself and soil carbon sequestration is quite a slow process. So uh, we have looked at um, some very degraded soils, so soils that have been starved of carbon for over 50 years, very low pores, very few connections between those pores. When we plant that up as a pasture and manage it as a, as a permanent pasture system, even after 10 years, we're still struggling to see statistically significant changes in the, in the pore network and the amount of pores in those soils. So it's very, I'm not saying all soils will be that slow. I'm sure some soils will be even slower. But our experience is that, that you've got to think about these things on a sort of decade timescale. How the microbial community changes, we've never really looked at in any great depth. So, you know, one, one of the key questions is if, if you take a, an organism that has been grown in the lab for 10 years and has got used to being grown in the lab, how effective is it going to be when you place it back in a community that may have tens of thousands of other species competing for nutrients in those soils? So, you know, theoretically, those organisms are not going to be fit to be able to, to thrive in any soil. Given that soil is very low in nutrients, it's very... Uh, it's a very changeable environment. It can be very hot during some seasons, very cold in others, very high salt content, but then there can also be very low water content. So organisms to be able to thrive have to be as good at coping with those changes as the resident community is. If it's lived for 10 years in the lab, it will have, got it, it will have become a Labrador rather than a wolf. And so it's very difficult to get it to... Now, what we, do, what we can say is the soils we have at Rothamsted that have had farmyard manure for 170 years, we're not seeing a particularly different microbial community in those. They look ostensibly the same. So it's not like you're suddenly seeing soil... This is really helpful, isn't it? It's not like you're seeing soil suddenly looking like the rumen microbiome of, of, of cattle because it's got lots of farmyard manure in it. It still looks like the soil microbiome. So... I'm rather skeptical about individual organisms being the answer. I think the way to manage soil is to, is to accept that it functions as a community and try and manage that community. And, and that's actually quite optimistic because we have evidence that we can do that, that we can influence the way the whole community functions and we can, offer it, we can manage it in a positive direction so that it uses nitrogen more efficiently. It uses less anaerobic processes. So we know that this is possible. A lot of these single organism products, I am rather skeptical of. Located on the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand, Greg Hart has been moving towards more regenerative practice in the last 15 years, and here he takes us on a tour of his farm, Mangarawa Station with our very own Kiwi, Fran Bailey, and her dad, Bill Bailey. Recorded about this time last year. Mangarara is 600 hectares. 
and it's a beautiful farm and it's got a lovely mixture from about 50 or 60 hectares of, of flat land and peat soils and then um, a mixture of easy rolling hill country up into some steeper hill country and it's, it's 470 hectares of pasture land and um, the lake is 35 hectares, there's a 13 hectare indigenous native forest that for some reason got left behind when they were cutting all the trees down so it's nice to have that <laughs> and then the rest is, is areas that we have you know, planted um, we planted another 20 hectares of native forest with Air New Zealand Environment Trust where we got some funding um, when people were flying with Air New Zealand they could either buy carbon credits or they could donate to the Air New Zealand Environment Trust and we were yeah. benefactors of, of a budget for three years and over that time we planted 85,000 trees, the bulk of those were the New Zealand natives but we've also planted a mixture of um, exotic trees you know, through the pasture and through the land um, just for shade and shelter and diversity for, for the farm. Do you ever get worried about sort of fire yes. and things like that? Yes, fire right. is an issue and it's sort of been um, a real issue there that we are a bit lightly stocked um, coming out of a, quite a big drought last year and we had an incredibly growthy spring and so grew lots of grass we're slightly understocked but also you know there's the whole uncertainty of what um, the markets are doing so just because you've got grass you know there's a whole lot of factors the way up mm -hmm. and like listening at the moment um, New Zealand is having some real issues with um, shipping and a lot of the meat groups in New Zealand are talking about going down to two or three days kill a week because we're getting to the point where all our chillers and freezers are, are um, becoming full and you know just because of the difficulty in um, shipping everything's slowed up around the world and um, yes yeah, so that they're saying that like shipping has gone up 300 percent wow. in the last year and so there's, I'll get it. and there's just a lot of uncertainty around so I'm not rushing to buy Stop everyone. Yeah, that's got to be a pretty big concern for people right now, doesn't it? That situation with COVID and yeah. So just watching that one as well. I mean, we've pretty much. Um, How much would you usually export? Like what sort of percentage of your? Like ours is not a lot, but of course the export market um, determines the prices for. Yeah, right. you know what the local market is doing as well because it sets the benchmark and we have um, been fortunate that we have got these partnerships with butcher shops which have you know, locked us into a price and so we do have that surety but you know if things get too out of whack then we'd have to you know, adjust our prices to fall back and so we went too um, different to what what the market was doing at least we do have something that's green How much winter feed would you make here? Do you make nothing? That's no. what I thought. I had a thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The whole drive has really been around getting fossil fuels out of you know, our food system. Yep. And so 
you know, we don't make hay or silage, and um, that's probably you know the big change that we've we've made is that we're not afraid to let the grass grow long in the summertime, as long as we you know at some stage we always will catch up with it, and just with big mobs of cattle, densely stocked, um, come come back in, and so they're grazing and are shifted every day, so you know. We're returning a lot of that dry matter back onto the soil surface where it gets broken down mm. by healthy soil biology. So is that part of yours? Yes. Part so, of your planting there? Yeah, so that's part of the New Zealand Environment Trust planting. And the plan was to go right to the top of the hill. But we started in 2008, and of course after the 2008 financial crisis, the money just didn't flow into mm-hmm. the trust and so we got our budget which we were allocated for three years and then they said sorry there's no more so we didn't get to go right to the top of that hill are you measuring the organic matter in your soil because yeah. i mean i just look around it and i mean this is all going to go back into your into the soil it's organic matter a lot of this dead grass mm-hmm. and i mean okay you you're you as you say you, you've got a low stocking rate here so you've got heaps of that's yeah. just for now. Like, yeah. I know it's not the yeah. normal one, but yeah. it would just be interesting to see what the long-term effects of mm. this organic matter going back into the soil. Okay, you're having a difficult year this year, but maybe the long-term yes. is going to have some significant effects further down the down the track of yeah. you know, water-holding capacity and those sorts of things. That's the expectation. Mm. Mm. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So lots of chicory coming up in the mm-hmm. paddocks down down by the where the hens are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We planted all that. We haven't again. We haven't planted or cultivated for twelve more years since we've sort of been in this mindset. And like this um, here, we had a, a mob of like little calves that we couldn't push, and they weren't. They've been densely stocked. So yeah, we get a bigger mob of cattle in here that will graze, and there's still lots of good clover and lots of good grazing in here, and um, that'll do a better job of trampling all the rest of it. There's some plantain in there as well. Yeah, it would be just a wild native plantain. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it's still it's a mm-hmm. uh, it's diversity. Diversity, and it's providing a different nutrient level too, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, enough minerals and that for the livestock. That's right. So can you walk, can you actually go on a walk from like yeah. up and back there? I didn't point it out, but back at the sheep yards there is, um, is part of the agreement with New Zealand is that the farm's open to the public and so people can see where their money that they donated to the trust has gone and um, so they sign in and read the health and safety briefing at the stop of the front of the farm okay. and then drive into the sheep yards, shearing shed area. And then there's maps and that that show them how to walk. There's little signs. Oh, okay. So those are the signs that you can... Yeah. And you're right. Um, With this taller grazing and more trees and then having public access to the farm, fire is a bit Mm. of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. So what soils are these, mainly? Great soils, and I'm trying to work out. Well, they're... A um, silt. There's, if I show you over the back, there, it's quite interesting. There's yep. a waterfall, and it's like papa, which is you know it's sea sediment, which is laid down underneath the sea, just yep. stacked up on top of that, and, and then um, it's just the sort of developed under the forest, and 
washed off the filter now. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, we might have to walk from here. I usually, yeah, that's right. usually drive and, and, and the mule. Oh, sure. Yeah, can you? I haven't left you in front of the hole there, anyway. No. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> As um, I'm getting a guy to remake the map, <laughs> just stuff. Uh, where we are. It's been a long year, and we don't know about you, but here at the Farmerama team, we're pretty exhausted. We wanted to say thank you to all of you, the Farmerama listeners, and people out there doing the work to build a more ecological and just farming future for all of us. We know this isn't easy, but we really appreciate you, and it's an honour to all be in this together. May 2022 bring beauty to you all. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and Fran Bailey. Big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team. Olivia Oldham, Katie Revel, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.